depression. So we talked about it as elders before that series, and we thought, you know, this is a, a real issue that Christians deal with, and it's worth talking about. Because the truth is, even as the redeemed people of God, we will encounter seasons of sadness, seasons of, seasons of spiritual dryness, and seasons of misery. And I, I use the word seasons because, one, it's, it's a biblical word, right? And it's a word that we should all remember and remind ourselves as we live the day-to-day -day Christian life, right? Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Right? In this world, we will experience all types of seasons. But the great thing about seasons, some are short and some are very long. Either way, seasons change. Right? It's not always summer. It's not always spring or fall or winter. Eventually, seasons change. What's happening in your life today may not be the case tomorrow or the next day or a month or a year or a decade from now. And yes, it may be true that you've been struggling with sadness and depression and hopelessness your whole life, and it doesn't feel like anything's changing. There's no end in sight. But the more significant truth to remind yourself is that this life is not all there is. Right? We belong to a God who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For those former things have passed away. Right? Even when we encounter death as the people of God, it's just another ending to another season. Right? And after, we enter into the best season. And really, I shouldn't even call it a season because it lasts forever. Right? We will experience eternal life with Christ. I say all this not as a solution to try and fix the people in the room who may be experiencing depression right now. No, I say all this as a reminder for us to be gracious to one another. Right? I'm going I'm to quote a phrase that I heard from my wife, Leisha, recently. She's not here this morning. She's not feeling well. Uh, she gave me her permission to use it. So, um, I heard her say this recently, and it, it was great. Uh, she didn't really understand the, the impact it had on me. But I heard her say uh, this. What she said was, God calls us not to fix people. God calls us to be gracious to people, right? God calls us not to fix people. He calls us to be gracious to one another, right? We can't fix another person. We couldn't even fix ourselves, right? You can't fix your spouse. You can't fix your kids. You can't fix any other human being. Only God can do that. So we're called. He calls us not to fix, but to extend grace to one another. And to be gracious to others means to be quick to listen. And sometimes that's all that's needed in that moment is to listen to a person who is struggling. You don't have to say anything. Right? There is a time to listen and there is a time to speak. And if it is a time to speak, we should speak truth in love as we point one another to the God of grace. Pointing each other to our God who is our hope. 
So to summarize my point, just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you will never struggle with despair or stretches of depression, right? And we need to remember that none of us have got it all together. It's a fallacy to think that the Christian life is without misery, right? Sometimes we even tend to, to believe that all the authors of the Bible were some sort of super race of holy people who never doubted or struggled with hopelessness, right? We tend to think that they really had a handle on this whole following God thing. But we forget the truth, or we never really think about the fact that they were fallen human beings with the same emotions, the same shortcomings, struggles, failings, the same depressing thoughts, the same everything, just like us. Right? For example, the book of Psalms is loaded with real-life human struggle and misery. Right? Case in point, Psalm 42, the text we'll be talking about today. This is not a joyful psalm. It's not jubilant. It's not upbeat. It's real. It's a psalm that speaks to the realness of the human experience in relation to a one true God of the universe who has ordained all things to come to pass. So with that understanding, I want to direct us now to today's sermon text in Psalm 42. I'll give you a few moments to find it in your Bibles. If you're having trouble, it is after Psalm 41 and right before Psalm 43. Just to let you know. All right. I think we have the verses here up on the screen. All right. I'll read it for us, and then we will go through it a little bit slower. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Amen. Now the plan for this message is for us to walk through this psalm together, stopping at various places to think through some of the emotions 
and some of the thoughts of the, that the psalmist is experiencing. Right? And as we do that, I want us to connect the dots, so to speak, between what's being expressed in this psalm to what we experience in our day-to-day lives as the people of God. Right? So to help us do that, as we go through these verses, we're going to look at three considerations here in this passage. First, we're going to consider longing after God. Then number two, the next thing we will consider after that is remembering who God is. And then our final consideration will be this, hoping in God in the midst of hopelessness. So as we prepare to take this trip through Psalm 42, I'm going to lay out some context here at the start uh, to help us understand the text a little better. But I also want to point out that I don't plan on saying all that can be said about Psalm 42 in one single sermon. It's impossible. There's so much to say. That's the beauty of God's Word. It's not exhaustive. There's always more that can be said about a particular passage of Scripture. So let's go ahead and start. All right, so first off, this particular psalm is the first one in what is known as Book 2 of the Psalms. So out of the 150 psalms found in the Psalter, only 11 of them, including Psalm 42, are attributed to a group called the Sons of Korah. And usually Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are looked at together as one continuous psalm. But as for today, we'll just be looking at Psalm 42. Let's go ahead and start with the inspired heading here uh, in Psalm 42. to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Obviously, the beginning of this heading, to the choir master, would indicate that these words were intended to be used in a psalm. And then the next word there, mascal, could be a musical term, or it may be a word that means an instructive ode or a teaching poem. But really, no one knows what the word mascal actually means. And that's okay because it doesn't affect the content of this passage. And next we have this phrase, of the sons of Korah. A couple of things to briefly point out about the sons of Korah. First off, who were they? Simply put, they were a group of Levite temple singers who were descendants of a man named Korah. Uh, Korah was a Levite who, along with others from his tribe and from the tribe of Reuben, publicly accused Moses and Aaron of abusing their positions and challenged their leadership. What this really amounted to was that Korah was jealous of Aaron and he wanted the position of high priest. Long story short, they brought this dispute before God. God favored Moses and Aaron, and God caused the earth to open up and swallow up Korah along with those who sided with him. All this, of course, being recorded in the books of Numbers chapter 16. So apparently some of Korah's descendants would later be placed in the position of singers and musicians in the tabernacle during the time of King David. So does that mean that the sons of Korah are the authors of Psalm 42, or was it King David? We typically think of King David when we think of the Psalms. Well, the flow and the language used in in this song are very similar to David's writing style. It sounds like him. Uh, The answer, as far as authorship goes, is this. We We don't know for sure. Some attribute this to David as a song to be performed by the sons of Korah, and others believe that the sons of Korah were responsible for its authorship. Either way, 
the identity of the author doesn't change the truth and the authority or the content of this passage because ultimately God wrote this. It's inspired. So in an effort to simplify things during this message, I plan on referring to the person who wrote this psalm as the psalmist. Keep things simple. So we've looked at the heading. Now let's dive back into verses 1 through 4 as we uh, take a look at our first consideration of this text, longing after God and what that means. Starting back in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude-keeping festival. So obviously we don't have to ask the question or try to guess at how this psalmist is feeling. It's pretty clear, right? My tears have been my food day and night. He's so depressed he can't eat. The only food that he's getting are his own tears. And you would think that if his tears have been his food day and night, then why is he talking about being thirsty? There are even people who are taunting him and mocking him about his belief in God. They ask the question, where is your God? You know, he's already down. Now he's being kicked while he's on the, on the ground. To say that he is just a little sad would be an understatement. He's in complete misery. Right? The question we need to be asking is this. What is causing him to feel this way? There is some indication of the reason there in the second sentence of verse 2 when the psalmist asks the question, when shall I come and appear before God? And before that, we had this illustration of a deer pant, panting after flowing streams, which he uses to express how his soul is thirsting after God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So let's explore this illustration a little further. What causes a deer to pant after water? Well, a deer, like most living things, pants after water when it's thirsty. Deer crave water when they're in need of water, which is necessary, obviously, to sustain life. So in the same way, the psalmist says that his, his soul thirsts for God. And I want to make a brief comment on the meaning of the word soul used here. So the Hebrew word used here for soul is nephesh, which is used in several different ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes nephesh is rendered soul, sometimes it's rendered self, or translated life, or creature, or even appetite, right? But when the word nephesh is used here in Psalm 42, it's translated soul, which should be rightly understood as referring to the entire living being of a person, right? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my nephesh for you, O God. My nephesh thirst for God meaning that his entire being, his inmost self, needs God. But what causes that kind of thirst? Well, just as a person gets thirsty as a result of not having water, the psalmist is spiritually thirsty for God because he feels like he doesn't have God. To him, God seems far away. 
He's at a distance from him. And we can say that based on verses 2 and 4. The second sentence of verse 2 asks the question, when shall I come and appear before God? He's not close to him. And in verse 4, we have the psalmist reminiscing about going to the house of God. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. He wouldn't say any of that if he felt close to God in this moment. So again, what would cause the author to feel as if God was far away from him? What would cause him to ask, when shall I come and appear before God? Let's think about this question as it relates to us, as, as modern-day Christians. Have you ever felt distant from God? I know I have, plenty of times. Right? Even pastors and church leaders, at times, feel far away from God. We felt spiritually dry. It's interesting how we even describe it as spiritually dry because that's the way it feels right we're not satisfied when we're like this we feel hopeless we long for God we want him to be close we're spiritually thirsty for him and the root cause for this the spiritual dryness ultimately is sin right understanding sin to be a state or condition and not just an action even as regenerate believers we are still fallen human beings Right? I love the fact that we corporately confess question one of the Heidelberg Catechism earlier, because catechisms are just a great way to learn and understand biblical doctrine. Right? Like understanding the effects of the fall from Genesis 3. Listen to what the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 17, says, what it teaches. It goes this way. Into what state did the fall bring mankind? Into what state did the fall bring mankind? Mankind. Here's the answer. The fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. The fall caused mankind to be plunged into a state of sin and misery. We are all born into a state of sin and misery. That's a reality. And as children of God, we have been and will be delivered from sin and misery ultimately in Jesus Christ. But we still deal with the effects of sin and misery as we live our lives here every day. Getting back to the text, one of the other causes of the psalmist's spiritual dryness or his thirst that he points to here in verse 4 is the fact that currently he's not able to attend public worship. All right, we can draw that conclusion again from verse 2 where he says, when shall I come and appear before God? And then when you, you couple that with how he remembers leading a crowd to the house of God with songs of praise, you come to that conclusion. Now, this, this text doesn't give us a clear answer as to what is preventing him from worshiping at the temple, but what we do know is that the temple, the house of God that he's talking about, was located in Jerusalem. So the psalmist could have been disconnected from worship based on just geographical distance, depending on where he is. Right? At, at any rate... The fact that he is longing for and recalling joyous memories that took place at the house of God tells us that this is where his thirst was satisfied. He was with God's people, leading them, praising God with them in song. That's when he felt close to God. Now let's connect the dots from, from what's being said there to 
our lives, right? Many, many times we experience those seasons of spiritual famine when we are disconnected from a local church body. Right now, that's, that's not always the case. Let me be clear. There are times even when we are worshiping on a regular basis and we go through a spiritually dry season and there's no explanation for it. Or sometimes there are various reasons for that. But the truth remains that as Christians, we need to be consistently involved in the life of the church. We need each other. especially on the Lord's Day. This is where we come to meet God. God uses His people as a means of ministering to them. Right? He has brought us together as one body, the body of Christ. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were single member, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Each of us form this body of Covenant Baptist Church. Right? The Spirit of God dwells in and with His people. We come here together to meet with God and to experience His presence. Right? So we spent some time now considering what it means to long after God and some of the various causes related to that. But there's one more thing that I want us we should be and I want us to I want us to be aware of because we are imperfect people. Our sinful state causes us to long after other things in an effort to try to satisfy our thirst with everything but God. Right? We, we long after other people and try to satisfy our lustful thirst in all kinds of perverse ways. We try to find total contentment in material possessions like homes and cars. We look for satisfaction in our comfort, in our own laziness and selfish behavior. We think that the answer to our thirst can be found in substances like drugs or excessive drinking. We look to our own good works and wisdom as the solution to our thirst. We pride ourselves on being good people who don't really need God or the church because we got a handle on all this. Friends, to believe those things means that you are believing lies. Right? And those lies will eventually leave us empty and still thirsty. Right? The only thing that you can count on sin to deliver is misery and death. The only thing that can satisfy this deep spiritual longing inside of all of us is God himself. Right? Think about the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. He told her, everyone who drinks of this water from this well 
will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that wonderful truth right there brings us to our next consideration with this text. Remembering who God is. I can't stress how important that is right there. Remembering who God is. Look back with me as I read verses 5 and 6 again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. The psalmist begins verse 5 with a question. Why, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Clearly, he feels that his soul, his entire living being, is in turmoil. It's in chaos inside of him. Other versions translate that verse, why are you disquieted in me? So the question must be asked, what is causing him, again, to feel this way? Why is he completely discouraged and depressed? What's bringing all of this on? Is it because he's thirsting after God? That's probably part of the answer. Is it because people are taunting him about his God and his faith? Again, maybe part of the answer. Or maybe because it's, he's been disconnected from public worship. He's not been able to attend. Well, I think all of those reasons are contributing factors here with this question. But really, based on the way this question is phrased, I don't even think the psalmist understands or can place his finger on what the source of this is. What's causing him to be cast down. Right? He's trying to figure out why. He examines himself and he asks himself, what's going on with me? Why am I so unsettled? Why am I so anxious and uneasy? Are there times when we experience this? Absolutely. There are days when I find myself asking myself this question all the time. Right? What's going on with you? Why do you feel so miserable? You don't have any reason to be miserable. Pull yourself together. Right? I think all of us can relate to these despairing types of emotions that come with really just unreasonable thoughts and worries. You know, there's times even when I worry about worrying too much. It's ridiculous. What's wrong with me? Sometimes we just can't figure out the issue within ourselves. You know, again, the general answer to this is that we are sinful people with fallen emotions that cause us to struggle with hopelessness. Some experience this more than others. But the great thing about this verse is the response that follows that question. Right, look back at verses 5 and 6. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Right, to examine your emotions, your own thoughts, you know, that, that's good and it's healthy and it's biblical to do that. And we should ask ourselves these searching questions often. But let's not forget the need and the importance 
to consistently preach truth to ourselves. Right? That's, that's what this psalmist is doing. It's exactly what he's doing. He's speaking truth to himself, even while he feels depressed. He's praising God. He says, I'm going to praise God again, even though I don't feel like praising him right now. As I was prepping for the sermon, I began reading a, a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm sure many of you are familiar. It's a well-known book. Uh, and there's a portion that addresses this idea of preaching to yourself, and it's great. And as a matter of fact, John Piper even mentioned this in one of his sermons on Psalm 42 um, from the same section of the book. Uh, so I'm going to read that now because it's helpful and it's worth mentioning. So in the book, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. Right? You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil, and the whole world, and say with this man in Psalm 42, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. The author here in Psalm 42 realizes there's a problem within him, but he doesn't look deeper inside himself to find the answer or to hope in himself. He looks outside of himself and he remembers God. I remember who you are, God. That's where he finds his hope and his salvation. He finds it in God. The psalmist continues this thought into verse 6. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. So why is, why is it so important for us as Christians living in a fallen world to remember who God is? Because remembering who God is and what he's accomplished is the foundation for our final consideration with this text. Here, hoping in God in the midst of hopelessness. Remembering who God is lays that foundation for hoping in God. So let's keep that thought at the front of our minds as I read verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. That whole verse really just paints this picture of a massive amount of water pouring down into an equally, equally massive and deep pool of water with the psalmist just caught right in the middle of all of that. Right? This is a picture of what hopelessness feels like. It's overwhelming. There's no escape. It feels like you're drowning, even. So how does this happen? What causes us to begin that downward spiral to, feel, to feeling hopeless. 
Well, all kinds of things can bring us to this type of depression. It could be because of various life circumstances. Maybe your health is in bad shape. Right? Maybe you've been diagnosed with a terrible disease like cancer or AIDS. Maybe you've lost your job recently. Maybe somebody you know and you care for dies unexpectedly. Maybe your marriage is an absolute wreck. It's a disaster. Maybe your kids cause you all kinds of heartache. Maybe you don't have children but desire to be a parent and for whatever reason, you just, it's just not happening. Maybe you're getting older and you're scared about death. That's real. Maybe you feel like your life just doesn't amount to anything. Or it could be just a combination of all those things or some of those things. See, these are the kinds of struggles that will overwhelm and consume you. They will consume your whole life. You feel like you're trapped underwater, just being bombarded with everything happening in your life. You don't even have a moment to catch your breath in between these problems. Right? It's just struggle after struggle, sorrow after sorrow, misery upon misery, over and over and over. But pay close attention to what he's saying here in this verse too. Right? He says, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Don't miss that. Right? Whose breakers and whose waves is he talking about? He recognizes this truth about God. That these things ultimately have been purposed by God according to his plan. No matter how overwhelming it may feel, Remind yourself that God is God. He's the one in control of how this will all play out. He's the one directing all things according to his sovereign will. Right? Think about this for a moment. In the middle of a hard season of life, have you ever had someone say to you something like this? Well, you know, God will never put more on you than you can handle. Have you heard that before? Maybe you even said that to someone before. Now you or they probably meant that with the best of intentions while you were trying to comfort somebody who was struggling. But that phrase is simply not true. It's not biblical to say that to people. Right? God will most, God will most definitely put more on you than you can handle so that you understand your need and how desperate you are for him. Think about James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Think about Job. The man lost everything. Do you think that was more than he could handle? Absolutely. You think about Joseph and his life, David even. No matter how overwhelming life can be, if you belong to Christ, then God is with you. And he may not take you out of the struggle, but he will not forsake you in it either. God will still be gracious to you. He will still be merciful to you because this is who God is. Is. 
Let's look back at verses 8 and 9. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We've been hearing that phrase about God's steadfast love a lot recently. It's like God has ordained all things to be or something. Right? Um, this is why we can say that remembering who God is lays the foundation for hoping in him. While it is true that God is in control of all things, it is also true that the Lord is good and he's forgiving and he's abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. And he hears our cries. He knows our frame. He knows our struggles. He cares for his people. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. This is why we can hope in God in the face of overwhelming hopelessness. All right, so let me finish up with these last two verses as we draw this to a close. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In the midst of hopelessness, when we're being assaulted by life and tragedies and problematic people and overwhelming depression and sorrow, the text tells us where to place our hope. Right? It doesn't say to hope in yourself. It doesn't say to hope in your circumstances. It doesn't say to hope in your spouse or your children or your family members or your mom or your dad or your marriage or your job or your friends or even your pastors. It tells you to hope in God. If you set your hope on anything other than God, you will be severely disappointed. Hope in God even when you don't feel like hoping in Him. Even when you don't feel like praising Him. Preach truth to yourself about who God is, what He's accomplished, and what He's promised to do. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Right? The, the sentence of that last verse doesn't just leave us hanging with nowhere to go. It, it points us so clearly to who God is. More specifically, it pushes us towards the God-man, Jesus Christ. Right? Because if you sit here today as a follower of Christ, then he is your hope, and he is your salvation. He delivered you. He saved you. You're being saved right now, and he will save you. When all seems hopeless, remember the gospel. So many times we say this, never forget the gospel. It's so important, right? Preach the gospel to yourself daily, moment by moment even. Our hope is in Jesus, not ourselves. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who took on God's wrath against sin in your place. He's the one who has saved you. He's the one who keeps you. So now before we turn our attention to the Lord's table, I want to leave you with these words from, from Romans chapter 8. It's just really good. It's good just to remind yourself of even daily. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also 
with him. Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for, you, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Rest in that. All right. Let's go ahead and pray before we partake of the Lord's table. Father in heaven, Lord, you know us so well. You know our struggles. You know our fears. You know our doubts. You know our anxieties. You know all those things, God. You know the, the deep things happening within us. So Lord, we pray that today that you would remind us to hope in you. And God, we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ, that he came, that he lived a perfect, righteous life that he died an atoning death, that he was raised back to life, defeating sin and death, and now sits at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. That is amazing. Help us to remember that every day, Lord. We need you just as much today as we did the moment you saved us, God. Help us to never feel like we're completely satisfied. Help us to always long for you. Help us to remember how desperate we are for you. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.